0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: He was now the enemy of the Taliban, and the Taliban were their enemies, and they weren't enemies before, and now it just meant that their lives were, were in danger and everybody that they knew had felt, felt like their lives were in danger. Um, and, and so the west 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 entire mission was completely pointless, because um, they'd left, they'd left the country in a worse state when than when they'd first arrived. Um, and it, to him, it had it, all been for nothing, basically.
2: Thank you for listening to this edition of Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. When I worked at the Provincial Reconstruction Team in Helmand Province, I was largely based at the Forward Operating Base in Lashkagar, the main city of that province. There, amid the dust and noise of an active military campaign, there was a small, beautifully tended garden inside the base. I'm going to be honest and say that I was too preoccupied with my own job ever to ask myself who was responsible for its upkeep even as I enjoyed that little slice of tranquility and beauty almost every day. Had I stopped to find out I would have learned that the gardener was Shyster Ghul, a local Afghan citizen whose hard work created a beautiful garden in the most unlikely place. By taking on that job, Shyster and the thousands of Afghans, many of them interpreters that served Britain during its involvement in the NATO mission, they became enemies of the Taliban, facing constant threats and worse, including murder in some cases. After the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August 2021, some lucky Afghans were able to escape on evacuation flights from Kabul. You'll all remember those scenes of the crowds at the airport but most were left behind and thousands made their way to Pakistan, including many that had been assured of resettlement in the UK. This month, the government of Pakistan has decided to expel all undocumented Afghans in the country. That's believed to be around one and a half million people. Of these, around 2,000 have been accepted as eligible to come to Britain in recognition of their past service with our forces. But thanks to a cost-saving policy made by Rishi Sunak last year, these people were kept in Pakistan in preference to bringing them to the UK, where of course the migration system is under acute strain. So now, these people who risk their lives serving our country find themselves threatened with being returned to Afghanistan by the Pakistani government. The story of Britain's treatment of those Afghans that worked with us during our involvement in that country is the subject of Larissa Brown's book, The Gardener of Lashkagar. Larissa is a defence correspondent currently with the Times and previously working for the Daily Mail. She joined me just as Pakistan was preparing to start its campaign of expulsions, to talk about Shaista Ghul and the wider history of Britain's betrayal of its Afghan friends. I started by asking her to describe her book.
1: Yes, yeah, so the story focuses on a man named Shyster and he was the gardener at the main operating base in Lashkargar uh, when British troops were, were were in Helmand Province, and he was employed directly by the the British military. And he uh, worked in the in the garden. He sort of created the entire place, it ended up being this uh, oasis of calm and tranquility for troops who were uh, desperate as opposed to escape the uh, realities of the war outside the, the military base. Um, and his son uh, Jamal Barak uh, became an interpreter at the age of uh, just seventeen, and so the story focuses on on Shyster Jamal and the rest of the family and what they go through over the years uh, until they um, eventually uh, finish working for the British in twenty fourteen when when the troops pull out. And it's just an it was just you know it's an extraordinary story because um, of, of the way that they suffer as a result of that service um, and the way that their family. Um, face uh, constant um threats some of the family members are, are are killed um some of them are tortured and this is all because of the their the direct involvement with the british military
2: as it happened i i spent uh, nearly a year of my life based in that that, that specific location in lashgar and i, I remember the, the garden and it had this sort of beautiful it was you know it, it was a very kind of perfect little jewel and, and apparently you know it got better in the following years as well so it it, it undoubtedly a small thing like that could have had a big impact on on the thousands of people who passed through there. Um, of course, we're talking now; uh, it's it's more than two years since the Taliban seized Kabul, and in fact, people remember the date of the fifteenth of fifteenth of August when they took Kabul. But two days earlier, Lashkar, Ghar, where where this um, you know base was, uh, fell. What was happening to to the to your family that the subject of your book around that time
1: so that time um it, it was it was a really difficult difficult um chapter um so uh, jamal Barak, the interpreter had had already come to britain he'd been allowed in under one of the government's first schemes for allowing uh, people who had worked with the british troops into the uk if their lives were deemed at sufficient risk and he um was getting messages from his father from Shyster, um who was in um, his house with his wife and his uh, and his children his sons and the messages um were of course getting more and more panicked he um people knew who he was in the in Lashkar Gah they knew that he'd been the gardener at the British military base um, he'd been seen you know walking in and out of the base uh, every single day um and yeah. he was terrified that the as the Taliban were getting closer to Lashkar Gah that he would be found and he would be killed and Jamal was desperately trying to get him out the british government had uh, refused to allow him to the uk because he hadn't been an interpreter so he hadn't been in one of those frontline roles um like jamal i was in contact with jamal at the time um trying to message other, i was trying to message other people to try and um, you know raise 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 his case uh, and and eventually um actually ben wallace who was then the defence secretary did get uh, Shaister's case on his desk and he was asked to look at it um, because it was one of those cases where he could be considered eligible under the current criteria, um, but he needed to show that he was actually at risk of being um, killed by the Taliban. And um, Ben Wallace decided to to let him in. And so I was in touch with Jamal then again when they were told that that wonderful news Um but it was it was sort of bittersweet at that point because um Shasta was also told that his uh, his oldest son, who was uh, over the age of eighteen, Mahmood, couldn't come, and Mahmood had been shot by the Taliban um he he had a wife, but he was um you know reliant on the help of the whole family um and yeah. uh, in the end, Shyster decided to leave to leave that his his, his um son Mahmood and take the other children to Kabul to try and get on a
2: flight. So many aspects of that story may be surprising to listeners, but also perhaps familiar to people who've had any um, sort of involvement with trying to help Afghans. Um, So, for example, the fact that even though this man worked in the military base and was well known to be, you know, the gardener for the Brits, were you surprised by kind of strange bureaucratic obstacles? Yes.
1: I mean, I'd been um, I, I'd started a campaign in 2015 with one of my colleagues at the Daily Mail, David Williams, to try and get Afghan interpreters out of Afghanistan. Um, and so this campaign, had, you know, yeah. I've been doing it for seven years by then, up oh, six years by then. Um, and through that, we've met um, and spoken to a lot of different people, so mainly interpreters, but also people in other roles such as chefs and mechanics who had told us all about the um, death threats that they were facing from the Taliban, from the intimidation, from family members being shot at um, killed um, on the doorstep. And and so we knew that there was a real uh, risk to 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 those people's lives, and and this is because the Taliban thought you know these people were the eyes and the ears of the British troops and the Americans, and that yeah
2: um
1: they they wanted them um they wanted them dead and they saw them as the as the enemy at that point um and so we, we you know I was very alive to the threat that they were facing, and with Shyster himself he had um, also received warning of him about his uh, job at the military base. And then once he left that um, job, um, his family still uh, felt threatened. Jamal had been been shot at whilst on the battlefield, Jamal. But also after that, he was also targeted um, by suspected Taliban members in Lashkar um, and uh, then again shyster's son Mahmoud was shot and his oldest son was killed um so it, just because he was a gardener it didn't mean that his life um wasn't at risk um in the same way that the other people's were at risk and so it was just um really heartbreaking at that time to hear from all those people who weren't considered well who were who had been were being told by the British um, Ministry of Defence that their lives weren't in sufficient danger, um, when actually in reality they were.
2: I mean, it's this bizarre spectacle of a um, a bureaucrat in London uh, who's sitting in, in complete safety, you know, de- deciding that they knew whether or not someone in Afghanistan was you know, at risk of death.
1: Yes, and this was my major frustration over the years because we were dealing with lots of different civil servants um, and different ministers, um, and it, it was just, you know, some people didn't even really understand the policy or how to apply the policy. Um, it was being, you know, they were letting in some people but not others. In, in some cases, they were claiming that interpreters had um had sort of done something wrong, you know, they have been sacked for various reasons, yeah. but then the cases were getting mixed up. Um, in one, I mean, one bizarre case that I write about in the book, because the book is much, you know, it's also about lots of other Afghans as well as just Shaisdor's family, but one of the cases I write about um, is a man named Hanif, who was a, an interpreter, and he was told he wasn't eligible um, at the very last minute after being given... Um, the flight details and after after buying his little girl new dress girls' new dresses to take with him to England, he was told that he was no longer eligible yeah. because the Home Office had flagged up some concerns. Now those concerns seemed to be like terrorist related or some, you know, something, something security related. Um, and then it all turned yeah. out to be a load of rubbish. The Americans accepted him and the British um later admitted that they got him mixed up with somebody else.
2: And those those types of cases um uh in in the aftermath of the fall of Kabul um as as you'll know, and of course, some of this comes up in your book that the a lot of people, just private citizens, including myself who'd had some link to Afghanistan, became involved with trying to help people out and those cases where a an inexplicable security concern in inverted commas right. that that could be devastating because almost by definition you have no means of questioning you know that information. Of course, it's it's not impossible that there may be genuine intelligence about someone having a link to Taliban or whatever, but how on earth? Um, you know, would would one sort of unpick those kinds of stories, and and it certainly seems to be them. You know, there've been several cases where where people face those those allegations.
1: Yeah, there's no there's no appeal process, so it's not like you can you can submit a, a whole dossier of evidence um disproving yeah. what the MOD claims. And and actually, in a lot of those cases, as um as a journalist, I was being told the background so for example in that case about the security concerns but they wouldn't the mod wouldn't pass that on to the actual individual so it wasn't you know to to hannah for example he was just told you know sorry you can no longer board this flight um whereas i was then getting further guidance um and and actually uh, that was also very difficult for for the individuals because they didn't even know officially what they were actually being turned down for um and, and and as i as i said you know the nmod did end up overturning many cases in the end um either because they were too harsh or because they got they would just got the, the wrong file um and, and it was just as, as simple but as terrible as that
2: one of the things um that seems to have played into this uh this really quite sort of depressing story of of betrayal is is as you said you know the the bureaucrats um not really understanding the rules themselves yes
1: so in the in the early days so when the when british troops pulled out in 2014 there were two policies in place and one of them um Was um, the one that Jamal came under, um, which basically said if you were an interpreter that had served uh, more than a year on the uh, front line uh, in Helmand Province, then you'd be um, eligible to come to Britain. But there was a really um, strange detail in that, and that you had to have served on an arbitrary date in 2012 in order to uh, be allowed in. Um, and so that excluded uh, hundreds if not thousands of people for for no reason at all Um, and you could also come in in under a second scheme if you could prove you'd been intimidated but actually the MOD over years and years uh, refused to let anyone into the UK under that policy because they didn't believe that they'd seen sufficient evidence even though um the interpreters and myself my colleague David Williams supplied photographs of um of them being shot shot um you know bullet bullet holes um, cars being shot shot up um the um letters from uh suspected Taliban members who which have been pinned to their doors and um, these so-called night letters so they 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 said that you know there wasn't evidence um To allow them to the UK. And um, and as I said, the first scheme just excluded lots of people, for example, those that had served for nine months in Helmand Province or those that had served for 10 years but were were only in Kabul. Um, And then later on, um, as a result of our campaigning, really, um, the policy did change several times, uh, which and it kept on um, being made uh, broader. So, you know, then they allowed people in who had served prior to 2012. Um, but again, we then we then got to 2021. Ben Wallace did change the policy twice. He uh, he brought in our the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy, and um, that in theory enabled people to come if they weren't interpreters, um, if they had other jobs, but could prove and could prove that their lives were at risk. Uh, so it changed lots and lots of time, times, and you know it, it all happened. Um, very quickly and too late in the end, because a lot of these people who were trying to get on flights at the, at the airport in August 2021 should have been allowed in a lot sooner, um, you know, before the Taliban had managed to take over the country.
2: Yeah. Um, and, and going back a little, because you mentioned that thing about intimidation and, and you know, the MOD in, in those early stages effectively denying that intimidation was happening whereas anybody who'd spent any time in in afghanistan knew that any afghan citizen who who had some you know public affiliation with with coalition forces was subject to constant threats so did you end up thinking that um you know the british state was deliberately um, ignoring the reality simply because they didn't want people to come in or was there something a bit more complicated going on about just an inability to understand the realities of what was happening in afghanistan
1: i think i i i do think it was probably a slight mixture of both i think it was more that you know you've got people that that might not have ever even been to afghanistan and and, and as you say didn't didn't understand what was going on on the ground um having to to get way through these cases and decide whether they um these people were worthy of of sanctuary or not i think also perhaps you know ministers could have quite easily said to to those um civil servants looking at these cases you know let's give them the benefit of the doubt if if they've got photographs that seem seem realistic and if they definitely were interpreters then you know let's let them in Um, Instead, it was like they were trying to sort of disprove every case. Um, It was just a really strange way of going about it. Um, And again, I think because they didn't really have proper files um, and proper, um, you know, proper sort of information on the on these people that uh, on these interpreters and they didn't they weren't sort of able to take a take a sort of bigger look at the case and then say, oh, they should be allowed, you know, they should be allowed in looking at circumstances. Instead, they just had, you know, might have had like three words or something, dismissed for, you know, drugs or something. And uh, and there'd be no mm. more detail about the case. And then you can't appeal those that, that situation. So it, it just seemed very, very unfair.
2: You mentioned just earlier about how um, by the time this situation was really sort of taken seriously. Uh, it was too late for, for many. And of course, we'll all remember those chaotic scenes at the airport in Kabul and, you know, terrible images of crowds, people clinging onto to the undersides of planes and so on. We are in a new reality that the Taliban controls Afghanistan. Uh, they absolutely clearly have plans to uh, find and punish, and, in many cases, kill people who had a connection with the coalition. Um, so what happened afterwards? Because in a way, the, the public attention turns away. And of course, the, the sequence here is it, it was only a few months later that Russia invaded Ukraine and, and a lot of attention turned to a sort of new conflict. What happened? What What's the scale of that story? How many of these people are still there trying to uh, escape? what is a very brutal uh, regime.
1: So after the, um, well, at, at the airport, um, I was in touch with, you know, a lot of uh, former interpreters and other locally employed staff who were stuck there. They'd been trying to get on the flights for days and they hadn't managed to get uh, into the airport because of Taliban checkpoints and because the crowds were too big. And that included yeah. Shaister and his family. They had been there uh, ever since they'd been told they were, uh, you know eligible for a flight um and they've seen horrific things they 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 were actually outside the airport when that terrible um uh, suicide bomb went off um yeah. which um killed you know more than 100 afghans and, and u.s marines and um and then they ended up having to you know get themselves to pakistan and the route there was incredibly dangerous because they were having to go through Taliban checkpoints. Uh, and Shyster yeah. was telling me how he, they, they got this medicine and they were trying to claim that he was sick and they needed to get to Pakistan for for medical help. And, and they were terrified. His sons were terrified that they were could be pulled over at, at any time. They'd seen him at one, one point in their journey. They'd been... Um, They'd been on a bus and they'd seen um, Afghans being taken off the bus and then not being allowed back on. So there was obviously a lot of um, speculation about what happened to them. Um, and then they they made it to Pakistan, um, where they where they ended up in in these hotels that the British government were paying for, and they were actually some of the lucky ones because they ended up on a, a flight to, to the UK quite soon afterwards. But I've been speaking to people for several um well for the last couple of years um who got stuck in those hotels in Pakistan and they've still they're still there um they're still waiting to come to Britain um because There there hasn't been housing available for them and ministers made a decision to not allow more people to fly here until the housing was available. And uh, they've been living there without without any education. The kids can't go to school. They haven't got visas. And and the situation is quite dire at the moment. I mean, we can talk about this later because the the uh, Pakistani government has now told uh, every foreign nationals that they have to leave if they haven't got a visa. Um, So anyway, we're in a situation now today where there are still Afghans left in Afghanistan that have been told they're eligible to come to the UK, but they haven't yet got out of the country. Um, And in August, uh, that was when the latest figures came out, um, there were 400 Afghans still eligible stuck in Afghanistan. Um, And there were 2000 people stuck in hotels in Pakistan. Now, since then, they have had a flight that's come from Pakistan to the UK full of um, interpreters and other individuals um, eligible for ARAP. But there are still hundreds of of people left in in Pakistan at the moment.
2: Yeah. And it's important to to reiterate that these are people who are eligible because they worked directly for the British government and, you know, served us. In, in dangerous places rather than people who are in generally you know uh, at risk from the taliban who may have an asylum claim and and that second scheme the acrs yeah. to my knowledge was announced was announced with great fanfare i remember at the time by government ministers but there was literally no method for anyone to actually apply it was it was sort of almost a, a fake scheme
1: Oh, and this is this has been um ridiculous. Um yeah, the the ACRS scheme, so the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme, um, yeah, is designed for vulnerable Afghans um who yes didn't didn't work directly with the British. Um but the only way you can apply for that is um basically through uh, a specific organization. So like you have to go through the UNHCR, um Uh, or or other organizations and so the afghans that have been contacting me such as women for example because a lot of the the women um know women are obviously in a lot of them are in huge danger at the moment um and they've got really really big restrictions on their freedoms they can't apply for arab because they most likely didn't work with the british forces um, and their, their hope was applying through the ACRS scheme, but they can't they can't apply, you know, th- themselves. And I, I'm yeah. in touch with one one woman in particular who was a former um, beauty salon owner. And uh, on the day that Kabul fell to the Taliban, she just had to run home and she got out of her jeans um donned her. Uh, burka and she's been basically stuck at home ever since and her mental health is really suffering I know just recently she was hospitalized because of her depression and uh, she's just in an absolute desperate situation and she's and she she sends me sort of messages appealing for help but those messages you know that they're they're not they're not listened to because there isn't really a way for her to get here Um, and it's just it's just desperately sad.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um you mentioned Pakistan there, and I think we should talk a bit more about it. And and just to sort of illustrate some of the challenges faced by those who've who've been accepted onto um, you know, the, the Arab scheme. So people who who we know served Britain in a, in a in an earlier period. Um I was very recently, as it happened, uh helping or trying to help uh one family where they've they've been told that, you know, they're their application is all in order. Um, but in order to, to proceed, they need to present the the original uh, birth certificates of the members of the family. Now, when you recall that, like many people, they fled Afghanistan in, in a sort of, you know, in, a, in the flight of their lives, literally fleeing a, a hostile army, the fact that they didn't collect all their documents on departure is not surprising. And yet, Um, In my interactions with the British state over this issue, there doesn't seem to be understanding of those kinds of basic questions.
1: No, I think when when the withdrawal was happening in August 2021, you know, a lot of these documents people didn't end up needing. They did accept people that hadn't got passports and things like that. But over time, it's got harder and harder. Um, and of course, if, if somebody needs to get a, a birth certificate, they're going to have to go through the Taliban controlled institution to get that. And then that raises exactly. uh, flags of, who, you know, why do you need that? Who, who you know, who did you work with the British? Did you work with the Americans? And it raises um, the risk to their life, really. Um so it's just I mean, asking for stuff like that is just not within the realms of possibility at the moment for many people. Um, and I think that has been one of the problems that has created a backlog because a lot of people don't actually have the right documentation. Um, and so the British have been um, quite slow to get them out of places like Pakistan.
2: What seems bizarre about that is that you do have this situation where, as I say, you know, these are people who've already been uh Logged as having worked for us, so it's not that we don't know who they are. I mean, it would be very different if someone showed up and said, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I claim that I worked for you, and you, and and we've got no record, and they don't have a birth certificate." So we know who these people are. This just seems yeah. like a a sort of bizarre bureaucratic obsession with documentation.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I know, I think, I do think that in some cases they aren't asking for birth certificates, and I, I do know families that have come through just by providing. You know, they've just given them the date of birth of the rest of the family members, um, but it obviously completely depends on on who you're who you're dealing with. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yes, I completely agree with you. It's just it's impossible to get that type of information. You ask uh, many Afghans what their date of birth is, and they don't have yeah. they don't have a clue because they don't celebrate birthdays in the same way that we do in the UK. And yes. if you ask their age they'll give you a rough oh yeah you know I'm in my 20s but they won't they won't even actually be sure of their age um it could be it could be anything really um and I think that is also just people just don't understand the culture there they don't realize that it's not it's not like um like how we how how we sort of celebrate things in the UK at all
2: yeah absolutely um but could we say a bit more about Pakistan because obviously um in in the long longer history of this story Pakistan uh has had lots of close relations with the Taliban and some would say that they're perfectly happy to see the Taliban back in control um do you think that has an impact on the plight of these people that who are there in in Islamabad or other parts of the country trying to get out
1: I think there were Quite a few of the Afghans, especially Shyster, actually, were really nervous when they got to Pakistan because they were told that they had to have an interview with the intelligence services. And obviously, they were very fearful of that. Um, But then when they arrived, it all seemed to go fairly smoothly. They were asked lots of questions. But then because the British had said they were going to fly them out, they then... Um, you know, they did they did get out. Um, but of course, it's sort of a strange situation for a lot of them because they don't trust uh, the Pakistan government. Um, they're just reliant on what the British government has told them. They're, they're stuck in these hotels just waiting. Um, and they now fear that they could be completely thrown out. So I know the British government are stepping up their flights. They're trying to get most of the um Afghans out of uh, you know Arab eligible Afghans out of the country, I think by Christmas. Um
2: yeah. but at the
1: moment there's this um there's this sort of deadline, which is actually uh, November the 1st, um that the, the government in Pakistan has said that all foreign citizens uh n- living in the country but haven't who haven't got documents must leave by tomorrow. Um and if they don't, then they could be arrested and imprisoned. Um, so you've got people that have actually lived in Pakistan for decades that are now being told they have to return to Afghanistan because they haven't got, um, you know, they have not got visas and things, um, and that's having an impact on all those uh, Afghans that actually fled since 2021 um, because they're also being told they've got to suddenly leave. And there, are, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who has is an interpreter living in the UK. But his brother and sister were facing um, uh, intimidation by the Taliban and threats um, because of the interpreter service with the British Army. So he was trying to get them them both out, but they haven't been told they can come to the UK. They did go to Pakistan, yeah. hoping that they would be able to come. But now they're just stuck there, wondering whether they're going to have to go back to Afghanistan, um, where they feel that there is a real um, risk to their, to their life. So there'll be a lot of people in situations like that where they've where they've left afghanistan because of the taliban and now they're having to return there because they've got no other uh, choice
2: i want to talk a bit about the sort of the 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 bigger picture obviously you came to this you come to this as a you're a defence editor defence correspondent at with, with two major newspapers um and you know your work was was following the both the British operations in Afghanistan, but of course, the international presence. What were your sort of conclusions at the end of that process in the sense that, uh, you know, Britain invested billions, we lost, I think, over 400 servicemen, of course, other countries invested more, and the Afghan people themselves, you know, the the price they paid is colossal. And yet, at the end of that story, uh you know the 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 whole thing collapsed sort of like a house of cards in in August 2021 um did you did you have a sort of sense that it was always going to end that way when you were covering the, the British deployment in earlier years I went
1: to flew to Camp bastion in 2014. I was on the last flight out of there with the British military and I think then I got the sense that we were pulling out all the combat troops and uh, and it, and the job but was was not done you know people yeah. were not living in peace and safety and we were leaving um the afghans behind really um and we yeah. we knew that the taliban were managing to take over in 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 some places um and i think at that point it was clear that it wasn't the time to go um and that that possibly we would be able to uh, you know, stop the Taliban taking over by having that uh, security and assistance mission in, in Kabul, but it wouldn't be enough longer term. Um, and yeah. I think then when in 2021, I'd already spent years covering the plight of the interpreters and could see how their lives were getting um, more and more dangerous. And they were moving around constantly because the Taliban kept on taking over uh, certain places were that they the, had been living. And you could see that it wasn't going in the right direction, and um, and I think just talking to to Shyster, for example, um, is very interesting on this because obviously he painted a picture of what you know what he thought about the the, the military mission there, the NATO mission, and he you know he never he he was glad that he taped, he got the job as the gardener, um, and he yeah. was he, he didn't regret that at all. Um, but I think he thought in the early days that the British and American um, arrival would w- was a was a great thing and that it would change their lives and make uh, Afghanistan peaceful and, and you know make them prosperous. And at that time, he was very he was very poor. Um, but then, because he'd been the gardener, he was he, he he described it to me as like he was now the enemy of the Taliban. And the Taliban were their enemies and they weren't enemies before. And now it just meant that their lives were, were in danger and everybody that they knew had felt, felt, like, felt like their lives were in danger. Um, and, and so the west, yeah. west west entire mission was completely pointless because um, they'd yeah. left. They'd left the country in a worse state when, the, when they'd first arrived. Um, and it, to him, it had it, it, all been for nothing, basically.
2: If he'd never had that job, he he could have led a... A, a quiet life, probably, you know, not at risk from from the Taliban. If one was trying to sort of sap- perhaps play the devil's advocate here, the 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 challenge that, that it's very clear that there's a there's a moral imperative. And I think, you know, you, you've explained in this interview and, and in your book in much more detail the the ways in which the, the British government certainly failed in its moral duty to people who had risked their lives to work with us. But there is this wider picture that immigration is a very sensitive topic politically. You know, quite a lot of um, uh, media organisations and newspapers don't don't write positive stories about immigration. That the, you know, there there is a there is clearly a lot of public concern and anxiety about this question. Yeah. Um, so is is it sort of realistic to expect um, a government to be more positive? And helpful.
1: I think what the problem is is it's wading through all of these cases. I mean, the government's received tens of thousands of appeals for help. It's wading through all of them and and making sure that you're identifying those people who um, are in danger. And that's a really difficult thing to do because everybody obviously will 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 want to to show that they are they are in danger if they're if they're left behind in Afghanistan, and so of course the government can't yeah. accept everybody. And so I do I completely um, empathise with the problem you know, the problem they've got there, um, but then there are cases that I, you know. Li- listen to every single day. And I just think, how have you not accepted this person? And and why are you being so mean um, in in these cases? So for example, um, just a few weeks ago, I had a, a man who's got a three-year-old son in Afghanistan, and they refused to let his son come and join his mother and father in the UK because his dad didn't have and wasn't earning enough as a taxi driver and we 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 wrote about the case in the times and i wrote about his case in my book and they then overturned the decision but we shouldn't have to do that they should just um, they should have allowed this this poor little kid who's forgotten who his mum and dad are to come straight away um and so yes there there are obviously the people many people would look at the the news and the and people coming on the boats and think that we've, we've people might think we've not got enough room here but these people are in danger because of our um uh military operation in Afghanistan and and so I really do feel that it's our you know moral duty to to help these people
2: well I think that's a that's a really good point to sort of um, uh, conclude the discussion i guess my, my final uh question would be um whether you think uh if there were to be another Situation where British troops are involved, perhaps for a prolonged period, perhaps relying on, um, you know, local helpers and interpreters and so on. Do you think uh, we've learned lessons? Do you think things will be better in a future um, scenario, or or are uh, does it will it always need people such as yourself to kind of force the these issues onto the public agenda?
1: I I doubt that that we've learned anything. I think. Um... <laughs> The only thing they've learned is that in future operations, they'll employ interpreters via third parties, via contractors. So they don't feel that they should then um, help them afterwards. And I know that's a very cynical uh, view, but I wow. just think that's the way it's going. Um, and, and the people that... The British government um, employed in the last uh, the last few years in Afghanistan when they were doing this security and assistance mission weren't employed directly by the British Ministry of Defence. They were employed by third parties. And I think that says it all.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, you have to assume that Taliban don't care at all whether your contract is with a third party.
1: Uh, no, not. Obviously not.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Larissa, very much for talking to me. i uh, just tell our listeners uh, about your book and where they can find it
1: yes yeah, so the book is called the gardener of lashkagar and it's available in all good bookshops
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you want to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, why not subscribe? It won't cost you anything. And spread the word if you find these podcasts useful. Behind the Lines was produced by me, Arthur Snell, and the music is by Matty Benbroke.
0: Planning for your next trip?